the prophet known as Isaiah, is going to be read in a little different manner than uh, per usual. I'm going to read it in parts and then preach on each part as I read it, breaking it down into three parts. But first, some context. This morning's passage in the 64th chapter comes to us in the place in Isaiah where scholars, not all, but most scholars claim, is the third segment of Isaiah, spanning over 200 years, called Tridio Isaiah. And it is written first, the first part is written by Isaiah, but then the second and third parts are written by disciples of Isaiah over that 200-year period. When Isaiah first wrote the first part, which are verses or chapters 1 through 39, it was around 740 B.C. to warn Israel that their rituals and feasts and temple worship had become idolatrous. That they had taken for granted that God would always be with them on Mount Zion in that mighty holy temple built by King Solomon. And in that temple rested the ark in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And on top of that ark, it was thought that God dwelled. And it was such a sacred place, nobody but the chief priests could go in there. And Isaiah writes his prophecy calling them out on their smug, self-righteous ways for believing that they had God in their pocket while practicing injustice with bad kings and bad politics, thinking that as long as they practiced their religion, they would be good. But Isaiah challenged them with that, with these words, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, God says. Instead, Isaiah says, of all this religious superficiality, do this, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. And then the prophet cried out for peace in the words we all know, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall we learn war anymore. That's first Isaiah. Second Isaiah begins in chapter 40, 200 years after first Isaiah. Just as first Isaiah had predicted, that Israel would be a smoldering ruin because of their temple idolatry, it happened. After a series of bad kings and stupid treaties, the Babylonian army marched into Jerusalem, burning all of Jerusalem and the temple down to the ground, raped, pillaged, and killed many, many of them, and then those were left, he, they took to Babylon to be slaves. 587. Second Isaiah provides hope in the midst of that to the exiles. 
There's nothing like that. To be exiled like that. That opens us up to words of hope. O come, O come, Emmanuel, second Isaiah writes, and ransom captive Israel exiles here. Second Isaiah screams, Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. A voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. In the desert, prepare a highway, and every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain will be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Which brings us to third Isaiah, this morning's passage, chapters 56 through 66. Over time, about 50 years as slaves in Babylon, King Cyrus frees them and sets them free to go back to Jerusalem where they return in hopes of rebuilding the temple around 515. And what they find is a devastated homeland and the work of rebuilding is arduous and hard. And they're struggling with their faith and they're wondering where God is. Think of Atlanta in 1865. Or Gaza today. And third Isaiah warns them that this time the temple must be a house of prayer and the people must be more holy by taking better care of the poor than they did their priests, and their temple. This third Isaiah understood it's hard to get over loss and trauma. It's hard to find energy enough to stand up and get back into life. And so the first thing they need to do is to lament and grieve and mourn what they had lost. And third Isaiah was wise enough to know that it always starts with anger at God. Hear this word from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. That's when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. It's a challenge. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We're waiting for you. Come now. They lament. Have you ever been in that place? 
If not, you will. That place where it seems all we get from God is either judgment or worse, silence or absence. And if so, have you ever been willing to get mad at God for this? Mad enough to raise your fist and challenge God to get off his duff and do something. Heal my loved one. Restore my job. Fix my marriage. Come down now, God, and fix it. In a favorite prayer I often use at funerals, there is this line, we give thanks, O God, for the meaning and hope that lies hidden in the heart of sorrow, disappointment, and grief. And it's a powerful reminder that in the middle of great sadness and loss, there is, there is hidden there meaning and hope. But why hidden? Why does it lie so hidden in the deep heart of things? Why doesn't God just show up to begin with? Just show up. Have you ever been there? So broken, so lost, so angry at God that the only thing you know to do is to cry out, raise your fist, and challenge God to stand up like a man. This is not a possible. This is belief. It is not heresy. This is belief because unless you were raising your fist to this God, you would not have a God to raise your fist to. And the Bible knows all about this kind of language. Almost a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And we heard today about the book Lamentations. And what we're being told by the Bible is that sometimes we can only cry out to God in pain and suffering and ask God to do something now. And until we are able to do that, we will not find the hope and faith in our sorrow, disappointment, and grief. This is where Advent starts, with lament and confession, with the realities of life and our willingness to name them for what they are, the good and the bad and the joy and the sorrow and the garden and its green, luscious nature and the desert and its dry, scary reality. But it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. Grief and anger, if given its due, will inevitably bring us crumpling to the ground. I've been there more than once, more than twice. One particular not most important time, but early in my life, when the dean of the University of North Carolina and I did not agree on what it would take to come back my junior year in college, I went on a long walk by myself 
And after a few minutes, I fell into the darkness of anger and rage. And if someone had been nearby and heard what I was screaming, they would have called the paddy wagon to come lock me up in an insane asylum. But after about 45 minutes of ranting and raving, I was exhausted and I literally and spiritually fell to my knees. And it was then and there that I went from lament to gut-wrenching confession and prayer. Because then, only then, actually I knew it, but I couldn't confess it, only then I knew that if I had just gone to class how could I blame God for that? And what we find in this second part of this morning's passage is just this revelation. After the anger and the rage, the writer says in 5.5, You come, God, to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. From rage to contrition and confession, and it takes a lot of time. You see, this is the place where we break all of our narcissistic illusions that God is always on our side and that we are always right and that I know the truth better than anybody else. This is the place where all those idolatries and lies and misinformation that we continue to seek simply to reinforce what we think is right, when all of that is gone and we fall on our knees, ah, I am guilty. And in that place, we discover our humanity and our mortality and our finitude and our fragile, fragile little nature as God's children. Healing starts from anger, but if we stay in it, it ends up sending us to our knees like children. So the words that follow in verses 8 through 9, the third stage of all this, yet you, Lord, are our Father. Twice in the Old Testament, this word Father is used. Here is one. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are still your people. Lord, our Father, we're the clay, you're the potter. We're the work of your hand. Do not be angry 
Do not remember our sins. According to the Midrash, a Jewish way of telling stories about the story in the Bible, if a potter makes a pot and leaves a pebble in it, when it comes out of the furnace, it will leak from the hole left by the pebble, and the liquid will pour out. This isn't a flower pot that's meant to have a hole. It's a pot meant to carry the wine or the water, a vessel. But if there's a hole in it, what good is it? And so Midrash asks, well, if God's, if God's the potter, then who caused the pot to leak and lose its liquid? And it was the potter who left the pebble in the jar as it was being made. We are pots after all, crack pots after all, and God is the potter. And our pots have holes in them. And despite our best efforts to close them up, we continue to tend to our little cracks and fissures and holes and take comfort in God who keeps us as still a valuable human child in God's kingdom. We're clay, not fire. We're mortals, not angels. So if God really took us seriously when we said, okay, God, come down now and show up and be like such a power that the whole world trembles, we perish, which is why probably God keeps God's distance. I don't know. I'm not God. I do know this for all of us. We have this experience of anger at God and contrition and confession and then hope and awareness that in our brokenness, we're still loved. Remember the scene in Forrest Gump? There's that powerful scene. It's Gump's former lieutenant, Dan, army lieutenant, had lost his legs from a grenade, I think. And, uh, and Forrest saved him. And, and Lieutenant Dan was mad at God for keeping him alive because he didn't have any legs to walk on anymore. And he was mad at Forrest Gump for saving him. But he ended up working for Gump on his shrimp boat. And one night, he's drinking a whole lot. And all that anger and rage starts coming out again. And, 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 and he's just screaming at God, calling him every cuss word in the book. Come down, come down. And all of a sudden there's this storm brewing up and it's like a hurricane. And it starts battering the boat. And Lieutenant Dan decides, well, watch this. So with his strong arms now, he climbs and hoists himself up to the masthead and is holding on with one hand while shaking his fist at God, screaming, is this all you've got? Is this all you've got, God, you blah, 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 blah? Show me something. Come down here now. And I think Forrest made some gumpism like, he's right where God wants him. In the next scene in the morning, Lieutenant Dan is sitting on the side of the ship. The wind had laid down. It's a beautiful, calm sea. And he says, and he says to Forrest, I don't know what happened, but I found my peace. Then he pushes himself off the ship into the water, the waters of baptism. 
And in and through that, he was brought to newness of life. Such is Advent. O come, O come, we pray, O God. And God comes, God has come, as we celebrate at the communion table and in the one Jesus Christ. Come, who knows our pains, our sufferings, our anger, our fatigue, all of us, for God came in human form. And also we live with the promise that one day, whenever, God will come again, and there will be no more suffering and hardship and pain. Until then, we wait and pray and laugh and scream and hold each other and share the body and blood of Christ.